Nobody asked for another podcast, so here you go, this is yet another Infra Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome to our 15th episode of yet another Infra Podcast. I'm your host, Vitaly Gordon, co-founder and CEO of Ferris AI. We're joined today by David Adrian, product manager at Google Chrome, Marcus Egan, product manager at MongoDB, and Alex Flemmer, CEO at Moment.dev. We'll be discussing today why most security products are useless, why most startups are rehashing the same old ideas, and Google's premature demise and the release of Bard. Hope you enjoy. David, thank you for joining us. You're a product manager working on Chrome security. And one of your highly hot takes is that most security products are useless because they focus on the wrong things. Could you please elaborate on what do you mean by that? And what should security products focus on? Sure. Well, there's, in my view, kind of like two directions of, of security that you see kind of with industry. You have product security roles, which is what I do, and organizational security roles. Okay, and product security roles are about like, you have some product and you need to make sure that the product itself is secure. And this can overlap into organizational security, which is more about like, how do you make sure that the company itself is being secured? And so an example of kind of where this overlaps would be like Figma. So Figma allows for plugins that are user-defined, right? And so there's a little bit of overlap there because the plugins run on Figma servers. So product security people are figuring out how to run them securely. But presumably, you know, if those plugins made it out of their sandbox, which is basically WebAssembly, that could become like an organizational concern, right? So there, there's clearly overlap. In the case of client software like Chrome, a little bit less so, right? Like your personal Chrome having malware installed on it doesn't really affect the security of like Google accounts in general, right? Besides perhaps your own. So there's that kind of two perspectives. And so keeping in mind that I'm more of like a product security person. So the issue on organizational security is lots of people are going after try to buy products to do things when they haven't kind of solved the baseline. So there's a lot of products kind of in like the threat hunting, threat management space, vulnerability management that are all about like trying to figure out what do you have, like what are the, what are attackers doing and how to locate it on your network, which is something to do. But like in practice, the a, a much better use of time, in my opinion, is to like focus on identity first and then focus on like what happens if I have malware and then somewhere way further down the line, you look at okay, you know, now that I have trust boundaries, I have SSO, I have phishing resistant auth, I have set things up so that if a developer laptop gets compromised by malware, like it doesn't really matter, then you can be like, all right, let's go snooping around in my network logs to try and like proactively find things that have gone wrong. But a lot of organizations will kind of start there without deploying like phishing resistant authentication, like YubiKeys or, or WebAuthet. And so you, it's just, it seems like the, the best thing that you can spend money on my opinion, is something that allows you to enforce a trust boundary and check, you know, there's some constraint you want to enforce. Is that actually happening in practice? Whether that's like this system can't connect to this other system, all of your login is going through SSO, that kind of thing. But in, instead, a lot of people start with like, you know, log management and that kind of stuff, which, which is certainly useful. But like your your DSP, your or DLP, data loss prevention, isn't going to help you at all. Like... Well, your users are still getting fish. Thank you. And Alex, would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. So I mostly have a question, which is, so I know that Wiz, the security company, is, is I think, probably the fastest or at least one of the fastest 
companies to go from 1 million ARR to 100 million mm-hmm. ARR. And in the background, generally speaking, like security companies over the last couple of years have had a pretty good, a pretty good run. My understanding, I'd love to hear if this is wrong, is that a lot of that, a lot of that change in, a, a lot of that run is attributable to the fact that the solar winds leak happened and the, or the solar winds, like the solar winds kind of had the security yeah. issue. And then a lot of companies could not actually, could not actually detect whether or not they were vulnerable to these, to, mm-hmm. to, to these attacks. And the result of this is that when the government went around and like tried to figure out, like they looked at the list of solar wind customers and the list of people that disclosed that they were vulnerable as a result of this, as a result of this compromise. And the list didn't match up. And so they went around and they told everybody, you have to be resilient to these attacks. And this caused a sort of bloom of specific kinds of security product that seem more like what you're describing is something that you would prioritize down the line. So I guess I'm wondering, like, first of all, is that accurate? And second of all, like how much, if that's true, it seems like, uh, it seems like the government actually has a pretty significant role to play in what security companies are going to be successful in environments like this. And maybe they should be saying something different than what they're actually saying. Yeah. So I guess I'll work backwards. The government is saying very similar things to kind of what I, uh, with the, the cybersecurity executive order, I think it was one of the day one executive orders for Biden. If not, it was very early, but that effectively had two parts to it. One was they said, OMB was going to release guidance on how government networks basically needed to switch to a zero trust model. I feel like an asshole plugging my own podcast, but I did, we did have a discussion with Eric Mill from OMB, who used to have my job at Google discussing like how that zero trust applies to government networks and government agencies. And then the second half of that executive order is NIST guidance and on how to do secure software development. There isn't really any discussion of like identity and what would normally be called zero trust outside of the government in that that executive order as far as I know. But the NIST guidance is very focused on supply chain security type things. That's a big part of it, along with a bunch of other stuff you might kind of expect, which is like, do you have pull requests and that type of thing? So yes, that 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 is definitely part of it. But what I think about tools like Wiz, Wiz when used effectively is really a debugging tool for the security team to do things because it helps you kind of find what you have deployed and how things are configured in a way that's more useful to a security team than trying to troll through cloud council a lot of the time. So a lot of these security products, some of them end up solving organizational problems. Like Zscaler solves organizational problems. It lets you deploy zero trust, excuse me, zero trust in quotes without like actually having to figure out how to deploy a single sign-on or like you don't want to sort out what a reverse proxy is. So you can deploy Zscaler and that like kind of works. And even in the government guidance, Z-trust, Z or Zscaler only kind of counts as, as zero trust. So there are many tools that solve organizational problems and that can be useful as a tool, but you, you have to be careful if, if you think you're buying a tool that solves an organizational problem and you think that it's like providing a trust boundary by like a DLP tool and you're like, okay, well now we're not going to get hacked. Well, that's probably not true. Like, are, are you enabling some specific employees to do something or are you creating a hard trust boundary? Um, and if you're not kind of doing either of those things, then you're maybe buying the product because their sales team is good. Marcus, thank you also for joining us today. You kind of have been a very active member of the Discord channel and you kind of are known for some of your hot takes. And one of them was about kind of similar to David's and about security and you were talking about the asymmetry between the users and the adversaries. And that is kind of because of that, the adversaries kind of will eventually win. Is my understanding correct? Or can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's correct. And it's interesting that David mentioned, you know, phishing and 
Z scaler and trust boundaries. I have like, I am in the web of, of Jay, the CEO of Z scaler was the CEO of a company called cypher trust back in the day. It was like an early anti-spam provider. And like the CTO of that company was chairperson of a company that bought my startup a long time ago. And now I feel that the phishing and the trust boundaries are, well, phishing is getting more sophisticated. Trust boundaries are, are more blurred. And it's related to the fact that these adversaries have a much greater incentive to evolve and level up. And users have not. They've, things have been made more convenient for them. So if you, if you live in a place, like if you live in a city that is known for petty crime, you're going to lock your door. You may even add an alarm system. You know how to work it. You know how some people have been forced to learn how to operate IP cameras, right? On the web, things are constantly made more convenient. And so this is at odds with some security best practices and some postures and adversaries love it. I mean, bad actors in the market are getting more and more sophisticated every day, learning new techniques. And I feel that the users are consistently using the same tools and approaches to, to solving problems. Like you meant, maybe mentioned log analysis and searching through logs or a DLP and like, I mean, these, these can be useful solutions, but I think that people need to go further and, and, and think more about the, like advancing the user's understanding of the problems and enabling the user more akin to how the adversaries are constantly evolving. I mean, I think we are starting to see that in like identity from tech for, for like sophisticated enterprises, like. UE keys are a decent solution, right? They're not something that work well for end consumers. Uh, but when you're in a world where you know all of your employees are and you're shipping them hardware anyway, like it's it's totally feasible to ship UE keys to everybody. It's harder for organizations that more, look more like the government or organizations that have very large numbers of contractors. But it's completely feasible for for many organizations today, and they aren't doing it for a variety of reasons. But it is it's definitely like the impact on the actual end user, if you can get them a configured YubiKey, it is not actually that high, right? You touch the thing when you log in and tell you don't have to ever go through a phishing training again, aside from what's required for compliance. And then Google, you know, for example, people who are not me, this is definitely not me speaking on behalf of Google, but pass keys are like trying to take that idea and weaken the security model a little bit, but in exchange for something that's more aligned with what users expect, which is basically like the security kind of goes back to the security of your Google account. And then you can get a similar guarantee, phishing proof guarantees that you get from your YubiKey. And so, so I think stuff is going in that direction, but it just takes time. One of your hot takes is that most companies are out of fresh ideas and all they do is just slap the latest trend on an old idea. Can you explain why you think so? And where can company get fresh original ideas? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think about it all the time. I I, I think we have a huge like a a huge group thing problem in 
and technology, like a lot of people are super similar, have similar interests outside of work, studied similar things, went to similar schools, have similar backgrounds, and they all sort of say the same thing. And I mean, there have been many people talking about this over the years, Innovator's Dilemma, and and I think even a, a Steve Jobs interview like six months before Next was bought by Apple to bring him back. They, they say that people think that they are successful because of the product that made them successful. Like you're a big company because of this product that you brought to market that was new, that was an innovation. And if you don't innovate, if you don't bring new products to market, you won't continue to be successful. And so companies, they become victims of, of that. But they have this confirmation bias, like what we're doing is correct, everything is right. We don't need to actually take the next leap forward. And they're, they're just not hungry anymore. And I, I think what the best thing that companies can do about this, and I like I don't have like the, the silver bullet or the maybe the best idea, but the, the things that I have seen work in the past outside of acquisitions, right? I think this acquisitions have been a fantastic strategy for, for now meta. I mean, Instagram, the like button, WhatsApp, <laughs> but not everybody has unlimited cash to, to buy these great companies to expand Oculus. But I think the, the best thing you can do is look in places that maybe everyone isn't looking at, right? A lot of people come from schools that are not household names necessarily. A lot of people aren't from the United States. Right? It's a it's a very small subset of the population. And like looking in the Bay Area for all the next, you know, generation defining companies just seems amiss to me in a world where a lot more people have high speed internet connections people can write code and read and have users and they're prob they're closer to problems than maybe i am in, in many instances because of where i live so it seems like you're talking about like two or three things here so one thing is like systemic access issues where people who have perspectives that are important and which could make or inform businesses that end up being really large are simply missing from the picture. But I think you're also talking about like innovation and like how capital allocation should work at large companies. And it seems to me that it seems to me that it's like actually pretty hard to, to when you, when you, when you think about like what technology products are, the reason why there's like asymmetric upside is because with relatively small amount of capital investment, you can make products that touch, you know, more or less every human on the planet, like Facebook or something, ideally. And if you're working at a company like, you know, like Microsoft or Yahoo or something, it's very difficult to actually allocate that capital in a way that does not like starve the business unit. <laughs> like the business unit that you're in either gets starved or it, it or it starves everything else around it. And and I think this is more or less what the innovators dilemma is talking about. It's, um, is that it is very difficult for a company to balance that asymmetric upside with the with you know the the conducting normal business operations and i'd be curious to hear if you have like thoughts about how that should actually change because 
I, I think like straightforwardly what you're saying is is part of the part of the picture is just like including more people who traditionally do not have access to those resources. But it seems like you have other things in mind related to like how capital allocation should work at a company like Microsoft. I think that the I like the two pizza rule at Amazon, like no team should be bigger than two pizzas, which is not a popular one because there are a lot more people in a company than two pizzas and everybody wants to be included, right? But then it impedes progress. So I think capital allocation should be like, it should be swift, siloed and, and autonomous, like small teams and who have the freedom to to move quickly within the bounds of you know re regulatory and compliance you know you but like people need to be able to to make decisions quickly and move fast and not have to operate at the same cadence or same pace as a different size or different age business i think that a lot of times people get like velocity and head count confused right or like velocity and capital investment confused and it's more people actually made you go slower in a lot of cases so i think that's an interesting framing but it seems to me that that model is much more amenable to like consumer style apps where you can like you know whatsapp can have whatever 12 people or whatever and exit at a bunch of money for core infrastructure investments, that seems like a lot harder, <laughs> right? Like if you wanted to build the next snowflake or something, like I, I think you will end up, you sort of by the nature of the problem, end up having to, to make significant investments in, in, and, and involve a lot of people. And I think the, the place where, the place where it's really difficult to figure out how to actually do that kind of capital allocation is where you have to make significant infrastructure investments and. And that does not, it does not seem to me that there's like a straightforward answer to this. Cause like you look at like Redshift versus Snowflake, right? I think Redshift could have been Snowflake and it just wasn't because, you know, they don't have a dedicated go-to-market machine selling <laughs> Redshift. They have to roll up into the incentive structure of AWS. And they, on top of that also, you know, the GM would have had to have been really good at raising money to like hire a bunch of engineers and stuff like that. And neither of those things are going to happen in an environment like AWS because your incentive is not to build the next snowflake, it's to build a portfolio of bets, which overall grow like AR of AWS. And I don't know how you, like that's big deep into like the incentive structure of the company. And it's kind of like that everywhere is, is my guess. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar problem, you know, at, at, any, at any large company. And I think like figuring out how to do what Marcus is describing, like is the big challenge of leadership and culture at, at big companies. Just like at some point you have to like, you're just doing so much stuff that even if you're super lean, you're going to have more people at your company than what, what it's called the Dunbar number, like the number of people that you can socially possibly ever know. And then like, once you get to that point, like, what do you do? How, unless you're going to, uh, uh, you know, hit like stop doing things, you know, disband large portions of the company at some point you scale past this point and like, what do you do? And, you know, externally, it looks like, you know, Microsoft did pretty well with this, like under Satya, changing like some specific things and being able to execute in different ways better. You know, from what I can say at Google, I was there briefly in, in 2016 as an intern and the process of getting features launched into Chrome, Chrome then compared to getting features launched into Chrome now is very different 
and much more formal now for, for a variety of reasons. And so the question is, you know, how, how do you manage that? Because Google is also like considerably, considerably larger. It was, it was big in 2016, but it's even bigger now. And, you know, that's just a very tough problem to, to handle, <laughs> but also kind of a problem to like, be happy to have, right? Like if you're a company that gets to like, your problem is how do I deal with more than like 1200 people or whatever? And you didn't, you know, accidentally confuse your revenue curve with your employee growth curve. Like that's a good problem to have. Do you think that Google is good at capital allocation in that traditional sense? Like I, when I think of good at capital allocation, I think of Microsoft. Do you think Google also falls into that bucket? I don't think I can answer that question on this podcast. <laughs> I think we should comment on other people's employers. Not. <laughs> it's interesting. You keep, you keep mentioning Microsoft, like, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, Bill Gates says like Coca-Cola is going to make money of the same recipe and the same product, but in technology, we have to reinvent ourselves every 10 years. And he said back then, like in 20, like in 10 years, Microsoft will be a totally different company. In 20 years, Microsoft will be a totally different company. And I look back at like Steve Ballmer's comments on Linux, and I think about how important Linux is to Microsoft today and their growth. I think there's some prescience and Bill Gates' comments back then, and and Steve Ballmer's, frankly. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft is like the biggest ship of Theseus of all, right? Like, you know, like it is true that they have Office and, and Windows, but those products have essentially been rebuilt from scratch, right? Like Office, like their go-to-market is 100%. Like there's there's, they're, they're selling like 0365 subscriptions now, right? It's like you had to change everything about how the Salesforce was incentivized in order to make that business actually work. I can't think of a company, you know, like other than Adobe that was able to sort of bet the entire farm on a completely new paradigm and actually succeeded. And I don't think that they actually get enough credit for that. Interestingly, I think a lot of that actually starts with Balmer. Like the Azure Linux stuff that kicked all of this off was an initiative that Balmer greenlit. The Office 365 burn the ships, <laughs> like change the Salesforce movement, all started under Balmer, and and I can I kind of feel like it, I kind of feel like he's like Batman. He's like the C, not the CEO that anybody wanted, but is the CEO that the company needed at the time to weather the antitrust stuff. I don't know that Coke is actually that stagnant either. Like at first glance, sure, but like if you look at trends over the years, like Diet Coke was really big in like the early 2000s then there's like been this pivot to like flavors and in, in coke zero like the recipe has been changing over the years right like it seems pretty stagnant but like when was the last time you drank a regular coke right i, I don't drink pop very often but i'm always like on coke zero which didn't exist 10 years ago so maybe maybe they're not pivoting to the cloud right but like other companies have had, do still make changes to survive yeah no I, I agree with you they definitely have evolved I think for for the way I think about it is like the the degree of change and like how drastic is the ship and how you do business every day go to market. I think the go to market is actually the the more challenging one, like because companies build these whole playbooks and repeatable motions and and understand deal mechanics of selling one product, and then they start down a path of a new product that has a totally different economic buyer, team profile, like sales cycle, like risk, cost structure. And, and so understanding like how things diverge 
deeply it is it's definitely a really rare skill as as alex mentioned not many companies have done it and i don't know how different the deal mechanics of coke zero are compared to Coca-Cola. yeah they're they're kind of selling them the same way even if the the flavors have changed so i think like the diff the difference is like primarily in distribution right like when you have essentially free distribute like when when di- incremental distribution is super trivial the mechanics of consumption really change whereas like coke has to have this a uh, you know, very complicated you know like somebody has to like scrape bauxite out of the ground in australia to make the aluminum cans and and like uh and then you have to figure out a way to get like all of this liquid to all these different parts in, in the in, in the world and it's like a persistent thing that people consume i think that's probably what bill gates is talking about but but for software it's like the incremental cost of using Facebook is nothing, right? Like, or, or the in- incremental cost of serving an additional search query on Google is nothing, at least until they transition to LLMs. And it is, I think it, it changes the dynamics of the business because when it is possible to distribute something to a lot of people basically instantly, it means that the consumption, like the pattern of consumption is completely different. It means that people who create new things have kind of like a built-in advantage over people who are trying to create like a new soda because you still have to solve the distribution problem if you have soda. You have to like get it all over the world and stuff. Staying back on the topic of Google and LLMs, a couple of days ago, Google released its own ChatGPT competitor called Bard. And unlike ChatGPT, it's free. It is connected to the internet so it can crawl and answer questions about the most recent information. Unlike ChatGPT, that is still in 2021. Alex, have the rumors of Google's demise been premature? Yeah. Well, are those the rumors? Like, is Google gonna die? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if anybody is 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 anybody really suggesting that. I do think it's interesting that a fairly small company was able to make the largest company on you know one of the probably arguably the best <laughs> best business model in the history of planet Earth, like completely change it its strategy for like its its flagship products right like that is a very interesting outcome that i don't think anybody would have expected like even five years ago my guess is i i think it'll be very interesting to see what happens next it feels like google kind of has to make this investment i think satya was basically right when he said that we're not going to maybe take over search but we are going to make them dance a little bit like that's (laughs) that's very clearly true like they are going to like they, somebody else is controlling Google's roadmap, and whether or not this product actually succeeds, I think I think that is like a very remarkable, like a very remarkable feat, which there is no analog to in, in modern technology. I don't think Microsoft ever had this happen to them, for example. So, for me, the questions are like, long term, what is the unit economics of this model? Like they are still marking it as experimental. My guess is they probably would not have released it unless there was significant pressure from Bing and ChatGPT and all of these upstarts. But I don't think we really know where the majority of the consumption is going to go or what the like what the super killer applications is. I think we're still in the phase we're in a phase where where Google kind of has to participate in this arms race because we don't know where it's going. And if, if they knew where it was going, they just build like more tactically build a product that addresses that. So I don't know. I mean, it's a brave new world. Like, what 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 happens when the largest company is like is forced to dance? Like, I mean, we're about to find out. 
What do you think, Patali, having run an X hundred person AI team at a significant public company? Well, I have to say that I've been playing for it for some time since its release. And I have to say it's pretty good. I'm yeah. I'm kind of pleasantly surprised. Like I had no doubt that Google has the talent in place, but I think what many people don't realize is that there are like a hundred different stages in the kind of pipeline of making a machine learning model work. And I actually thought that Google kind of was maybe focusing too much on the state of the art of the model itself and like, you know, producing research papers and not so much to think about the, the pipelines, which I think that is one of the aspects that uh, OpenAI did very, very well. But it seems like from at least the few use cases that I tried, that BARD is actually pretty good. And I, I have to say that even one use case that I, you know, just a personal enjoyment of mine is to ask AI to explain jokes, Bard actually does a pretty good job at it. Like this is an intelligence level that, you know, even kids don't have it yet. Like if you ask a kid to explain you a joke, like they probably would not be able, especially if there is a, some historical context to the joke and all that. And apparently uh, Bard does it very well. And, you know, and ChatGPT is actually not that great at it. But I don't know, Marcus or David, have you have you tried it out? Yeah, I tried it for a few things and was sort of like, okay, I'll check back in a little while when there's been more work, more tuning. I think that Google, you know, rumors of its demise are definitely premature. It feels to me kind of like the JP Morgan, one of the JP Morgans of software, like of computing, like they sponsor a lot of the internet, <laughs> like a lot of the computing, a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the research. But in fact, OpenAI doesn't exist without the Transformers paper from Google. I think that this was well played. This could be another instance of like first mover disadvantage, like. Maybe they let OpenAI, maybe they were waiting for somebody to come out and, and take the punches of productizing an LLM, which has many limitations. Like LLMs by themselves, the ones that we know about at least, have many limitations for being trusted, like commercially consumed product for general use, right? If it's very specific, that's different, but like they have a lot of challenges and so I think what we're seeing from Google is exciting. It's going to push the possibilities and it's probably going to spawn a generation of new companies and technologies. So I'm excited about that. I'll be curious also to see how some of the longer tail features actually impact usage. So asking questions that require some amount of specificity, like about math and stuff like that seems like definitely super cool. I personally am interested in that and like, I want to know how they do it and things like that, but it's not super clear to me that this is going to really impact like actual, uh, actual usage. That's one of the things that I'm looking forward to is when you have considerable resources, you can start to like place a bunch, like a portfolio of tactical bets. And I'll be very curious to see which use cases arise out of that. I think one thing that I, I think they probably didn't anticipate going into this launch was the, or maybe they did anticipate it. I don't know. I mean, I don't work at Google is the like plugin model for GPT. I think obviates like quite a lot of the work that they may have done to to do things like make more specific 
like you know more more specific features for specific verticals like math and and like coding and stuff like that if gpt actually makes progress on that and people actually adopt the the plugin model i think that it may be pretty hard for bard to catch up with that and it'll be <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what happens to to all of these players also yeah. anthropic released like a 100,000 token context window for their their latest language model and i think that that I will be curious to see how that impacts uses. My guess is that opens up the door to a lot of enterprise use cases that GPT and BART are probably not super accessible to right now. Let me actually ask another question because there is another asset that Google has that at least OpenAI doesn't have maybe through the partnership with Microsoft they have, which is the snippets in search, right, that they display, which actually also provides a kind of more semantic understanding of many, many topics where let's say maybe a large language models that don't have a bad or, you know, another way to think about it is they already hard coded probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of these use cases that they know what people are looking for and what kind of type of answer they expect. Do you think something like that can also give them the edge over something like ChatGPT or any other thing that there is requires just many labors, many labor over the years? Yeah, totally. I mean, I I think that's probably why they were like they built in like the math stuff, right? It's because we know how much people <laughs> like we know roughly what the breakdown is of people who are going to like web search to do tasks like add numbers together and stuff like that. And like we understand like the percentage of searches that are like repeatable where the top 10 results all have the exact same information and you just you just need to like surface that that's like the impetus behind like the knowledge graph the knowledge cards that ever that every search engine has now where you just like get the information out of the web page and you just tell the user so they don't actually have to visit a page that kind of knowledge is really hard to accumulate over the years and it's one of the reasons why something like google is so sticky is because you have this extremely long tail of stuff that they've accumulated, which which there's no real substitute for other than to spend 20 years accumulating it. And, and it makes it very difficult for companies like Microsoft to make a competitor, which are at all, you know, at all performing on the same search queries. The trick though, is GPT, is BARD, are these large language models going to be used in the same way that search is? And my guess is probably not actually. And if that's true, my guess is that both of these products, like Bing GPT or whatever it's called, and Bard are probably not going to succeed in the long term, especially given that the unit economics of Google search are so cheap. It's probably, I'm guessing, I mean, I don't have the numbers. I'm guessing it's like somewhere between a thousand and 10,000 times cheaper to run a search query than it is to execute like a Bard, like, <laughs> like enumerating a response from Bard. So you know, like there would have to be very compelling reasons for us, for like everybody to move over to, to Bard from Google search for, for a lot of those modalities. And it's just, it's just difficult for me to believe that people are going to use it exactly the same way that they're going to use search. Yeah. So Alex, I would totally take the other side of the bet here. I think the experience is just so much better, but the companies will figure out how to serve that experience because like every time I took a bet against the better user experience, I ended up losing that, whether it's programming languages, whether it's databases, whether it's, you know, it's pretty much 
every time someone offered a better developer experience, even if it was at a cost of performance, security, you know, you name it, still the better <laughs> developer experience won. And I think we will figure out a way to do it here as well. But do you do you think it's really a better experience for core search? Or do you think it's a better experience for a bunch of stuff that people are don't have tools for right now? I think it's a better experience to, like, let's take Google's mission, right? Which is like organize the world's information, right? And, you know, let's think about like, so, well, if they take that mission and eventually for people to get access to that information, I think the kind of the chat experience is, a, is just a much better experience to get access to that world's information rather than, you know, the search bar that we've been using for the last 25 years. I'll push back on that, right? Like, I think that, you know, the search bar is the platonic ideal of, I think people, if you've never worked on consumer search, I think people forget how hard it is. So, you know, previously I told this story, but to, to give you an example of the long tail of, of users, like you, okay. So like search is the platonic ideal, the platonic ideal of products. It is a single text box. You type stuff into it, you get a result, right? In theory, this should be understandable by every man, woman, and child on planet earth in practice. You will find if you do user tests for any amount of time that people actually don't understand this product in a very fundamental way. And I'll give you a very specific anecdote, which I know I said in a previous episode, but is also germane to this conversation. So when when I worked at Bing, there was this post on Read Write Web called like Facebook wants to be the login of the internet or whatever. And for the first eight hours of its life, it was totally a normal blog post. Nothing happened. It was like like Read Write Web was like a TechCrunch competitor. It was fine. And then like eight hours into the post, they suddenly started getting like hundreds of comments from people who were asking confusing questions. Like, why did you change it? I like the old way better. And what had happened was for like 15 minutes for the Facebook, like the query Facebook login, this article had got bought to the top of the like SERP, like the search engines results page. And people, there's a class of people who, whose way of getting to Facebook was to type Facebook login into the like Google search bar and then just click the first link and they literally could not tell the difference between Facebook and like a random tech blog, right? If it, I think my lesson from this is actually that design is impossible. Like you can't actually design a product for a billion people. There's no way to do it, right? Even, even in the case where you have literally a text box, no other buttons, no other wizardry, literally just type what you want in the, into the text box, people still don't know how to use that product. And Maybe over the years, we can teach people to use something like chat GPT, but my, my guess is that like, is, is that it is harder to do this than we are giving it credit for now. And for a lot of people on the internet right now, maybe this will change in 20 years, but right now for a lot of people on the internet, I do think that search engines are probably a better experience for those specific things, for the specific things that people go to search engines for right now could change, but <laughs> But that's, that's how the world is right now because you have like 7 billion people or like somewhere between 3 and 5 billion people on the internet using stuff like this. I think the bull case for something like ChatGPT is that uh, is actually not that you're going to retrofit the rest of the world away from using search engines. The bull case for ChatGPT is you're going to invent an entirely new internet, right? <laughs> that is my position on, on like the LLMs is like, I think that when you have access to text synthesis that actually works, it implies a fundamentally different structure of the web and implies different, like websites do different things and implies a different interaction model for every page on the internet. That's actually super powerful. I just don't think that it looks like the internet of today. So 
I don't know. Your response, Vitaly, <laughs> you look stoic and skeptical. So, no, and I, I, I completely agree on the on the last thing. The internet will change because you know if we have new capabilities, the way we design pages and the way we design information will will change. Yeah. My point was more that this whole thing that. You know, you type words into a search bar and those words hit some, you know, Lucene index and all that, and then kind of rank the, the results back. I think we'll realize that, you know, even though that is what we got to use in the last 25 years, I think a natural language interface would be actually, you know, kind of much better. And I think we do see that with, with as time goes by, more and more results from Google are actually served by these widgets, right? And actually, we are seeing that, it, you know, the old way of searching, seeing a list of links, and then clicking on a link in order to find the information, I think that is the thing that will become outdated. One last thing, and then I'll shut up. I think that the tricky part about this, like the fly in the ointment, is that I think that hallucinations, as we call them now, are probably here to stay. And that has significant implications, fundamental implications for the user interface. And the reason I think that it's here to stay for, for good is because the, the models in some sense are useful because of the cross entropy between what you're saying and like some random other shit, right? Like you want, you don't want models to literally predict whatever you would say. You want them to sort of explore and, and enumerate token sequences that are slightly outside of what you would expect. That's the magic of LLMs. The magic of LLMs is that there's this other stuff that you want to mix into like the thing that you are prompting it about, right? And there's no way to make that consistent across the entire knowledge base. And you, you wouldn't want to, you want it to do this sort of, you want it to be somewhat exploratory in its responses. And then you want some supervisory process above it to ensure the coherence of those responses. That's, that's what I think. But I think that if you're going to expect that some of the answers are just going to be like plainly incorrect, it has significant implications for which domains it is useful in. And, you know, like for me, that implies like, you know, knowledge workers whose job is to discriminate between, between which responses are sensible and which responses aren't, are suddenly empowered in ways that they haven't previously been, right? Like engineers are empowered because the code isn't 100% correct, but you can audit it and you can look at it and you can like decide whether or not that's actually applicable to you. I get, again, fundamentally changes the internet, right? Like, like your search engines are good at one thing, which is that they are good at uncovering facts and surfacing them to people. And when you need facts and you need them to be surfaced to people, there isn't going to be a cheaper way of doing that where, but I think this is a sea change in a completely different way. It's like you're elevating people like the, Wait, like, like, sorry, what are facts? What are the facts? You said searches just can surface facts. Yeah, there's a lot of dirt shit on the internet. So when we say facts in like information retrieval, we tend to mean things right. like replaceable search results. So if you Google the, like when does the hundred years war start, right? All ten of the top search results are going to say thirteen thirty seven. That is a fact. <laughs> the search engines, you know, like I, when I say search engines, I don't mean like Lucy. I mean like the search engine companies like Google crawl all of these web pages, they recover these things that they think are facts, and then they surface them in the knowledge cards directly to the users so that they don't have to click on these repeatable search results. That's one entire class of search search queries, right? 
There's another entire class of search queries, which is like, something is happening in my immediate vicinity. Like there is an earthquake or Taylor Swift concert, right? And Google search results job is to retrieve facts about that and surface that in a context where it's expecting people to be searching it. So the local component is really important. And in the parlance of search engines, we, we call those things facts. I'm not saying we're going to recover like, you know, facts about politics or something like that. I mean, like, well, well yeah, I'm, sa I'm saying even those facts can be wrong. And that, sure. that's why I'm just emphasizing facts, the notion of facts. And, you know, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with search engines information, Drivo, definitely Lucene, but dabble a lot with it. And I think that the issue that I see with this trend is the auditability, the debugability, like how much, like these, one of these innovator dilemmas is control. Like a lot of people want control of things. Many people new or new ideas, they want control of those to kind of manage them and understand them as much as they can. And people don't really feel like they control LLMs today, even the, the creators themselves. So I think that when we cross that chasm where there's more predictability and, and people understand more, I think things are going to be interesting. The competition between like these transformers, these encoders and decoders versus these specialized indexes for, for handling natural language. My bet has always been that the future is going to be both lexical and semantic and whoever figures out how to combine them in a way that feels natural and like a conversation, I think they win. Awesome. Well, and we'll wrap this episode for today. Alex, Marcus, David, thank you so much for joining us. Go Blue. Thank you for having me. And yeah, go Blue.